Welcome to Knives Out Minute, a podcast that's all about vibes. I'm your host, Brian Lynch. My guest is Michael, and this is minute number eight from uh, seven minutes on to uh, seven minutes and 59 seconds. Um, I always feel weird when I say, first of all, hello, Michael. Welcome back. Hi. It's so good to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, I always feel weird when I say that, uh, this is like, you know, minute eight, which starts at seven minutes, but obviously minute one starts at zero minutes. So, you know, I know it's mathematically correct, but it feels wrong. It's one of those things you have to go back and double check. Like the math is right. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, This all makes sense. I understand. This is all fine. Um, so uh, the plot does not move uh, particularly over much in this one. Uh, we do get our first good look at the man in the chair, who, as you will notice, we have cleverly uh, avoided saying... No, we definitely did not. It's obvious. It's Daniel Craig. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm sorry that you you didn't get to wait six more minutes to meet Daniel Craig, <laughs> to meet Mr. <laughs> Rachel Weiss. Um... But yes, uh, in answer to the previous question, so first of all, the first line, as we have been trying to remember to say, is Jamie Lee Curtis looking suspiciously at said man and saying, no. (laughs) Because her husband, Richard, came early to help the caterers. And once again, the mystery fans of the audience go, came early, you say. (laughs) Yeah, so what we established plot-wise are a bunch of, like, timeline facts which you need in every murder mystery who was where doing what when and Mm -hmm. how did those uh, does that expose any kind of motive so we know he was there well before everybody else um and oh gosh i mean a lot of things are revealed in linda's like little yes well because she also mentioned well because first uh elliot says like oh um you and your husband both work at a real estate firm right and Elliot's very good. I don't think, I think because Harlan, uh, you know, the way he died and everything, and guys, listen, it's a mystery, and I'm not, obviously, the obvious answers aren't going to be true. Um, (laughs) I was like, wait, can I, can I say that there's a mystery without spoiling the mystery movie I'm watching? Obviously there's a mystery. So I, I I believe the murderer, if you, you'll find the murderer's name is R.E. Ed Herring. (laughs) The, um... Uh, there's there's a minor supporting Scooby Doo character named Red Herring. <laughs> it was in the well, you remember in the '90s when everybody had a um, uh, there was like the Flintstones kids and there was uh, you know there was like Muppet little kids Muppet Babies, and... uh, the Tom and Jerry kids, and um, there was a pup named Scooby Doo was one of them, and uh, the uh, the town bully was Red Herring, and uh, Fred would always accuse him of being the criminal at the beginning, and it would turn out to be somebody else. So. <laughs> I love that. Um, I haven't thought about a pup named Scooby-Doo since uh, 1996. So that's a real flashback for me. That's also, I think, apart from the live-action movies, the only uh, canon in which Scooby snacks are dog treats. Uh, They are mostly cookies for humans, and Scooby is named after them. (laughs) 
What a weird dog whose franchise is snacks, but also solving mysteries. Well, I don't think he's like the mascot of them. I think I think he's well, no, because his name is Scoobert. I guess it's a coincidence. <laughs> I'm so sorry. We have to get back to the story. No, it's our vibe. Um, So yes, uh, as vibes out. (laughs) As Linda says um, that uh, she does not work at a real estate firm. She owns a real estate firm. She started the business from the ground up. Uh, Like most children of incredibly wealthy people, she seems to think that she, uh, you know, hit a triple when she was actually born on third base. She, uh, oh wow, baseball. <laughs> yes, she uh, started this company and built it successfully from the ground up with nothing but a hope and a large investment of money and all the connections she needed to network. <laughs> yeah, with nothing but a, a dream in her heart, a spring in her step, and a uh, incredibly wealthy father. <laughs> I am. Um, she so she mentions this really great kind of like character moment when she's talking about being at the party where um, they ask like, "Oh, you and your father." So I guess you two were pretty close because mm-hmm. you're so similar. And she's and she gets very tight lipped and very uncomfortable. And she says, "You had to find a game with dad and mm-hmm. then play by his rules, and then that's how you had a relationship." Which I think is an interesting character moment to note, considering. What we find out about Martin Harlan's relationship later. Mm-hmm. She also mentions a secret way of communicating, which once again just sends the mystery fans in the audience into like absolute spasms. <laughs> like, oh my god, there's going to be a code later. <laughs> we also properly meet Richard at this point, but he doesn't really do much other than say hi, and he talks about uh, going to the party, and we see in a flashback them putting the cake down in front of Linda, uh, in front of Harlan, as Linda and Richard stand lovingly at his side. Uh, this is a visual motif that I hope you are paying attention to, because it's one of my favorite subtle little bits in the movie, but that's for a future minute. You know what <laughs> I'm talking about, though, right? Oh, hard same. Yes, yeah. very much. It's one of my favorite, like, little gags in the movie. The movie is filled with just enough little gags mm-hmm. the right amount of times. Like, you don't get annoyed with any of these jokes. They're they're timed so well. The the thing about this kind of, like, fun mystery, I was thinking of what you say because this isn't exactly a cozy mystery, which is what we were calling it yesterday. It's certainly close enough that, you know, that's yeah. a, a suitable... But um, uh, I think fun mystery is a good way of putting it, because <laughs> yeah. mystery is definitely the most important part, but it never loses track of the comedy. Even, you know, this is going to be a minor spoiler later, but there's a brief car chase that l- literally one character says, the dumbest car chase I've ever been involved in. <laughs> um, it's great. I, I just, because I don't know if I'm going to ever be doing a minute where uh, I get to see Marta's car. I have the same car. <laughs> so, like literally same so year, really- everything. So at that part later, you really felt that. Like, I on a really level. felt it. Yeah, no, my um, uh, the uh, mine's orange. That's literally the only difference. It's same make, same model. Uh, you know, hers is slightly cleaner than mine, I guess. Uh, so you know, that. you could uh, you could really lie to people about that and get yourself some, some like you know, my car was actually in Knives Out. Uh, my friend, yeah. my friend Ryan called me up and asked if he could borrow my car to play a bad car in a movie. <laughs> Um, I want to talk really quickly about the music in these party scenes. Um, yes, this is um, uh, a, a great opportunity to uh, bring up the music, which is amazing. Oh, so good. What a great 
great score. One of the things I love about this is, so for the first few minutes of this interview, there has been no background music. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but then she starts interviewing, and once people are at the party, the music plays. When they cut back to them doing, like, the interview, the music stops. And it's just, like, a clear, it's just such a clear, like, diegetic, use of diegesis, especially, mm-hmm. like, we're between two moments, and one of these moments is clearly, like, not factual and is based on like emotion and an idea and not really what really happened and those moments have like oh there's this happy up jazz that's playing while she's talking about her relationship with her father and then like the second her husband begins to talk about her relationship with her father the part the jazz music is sad now like it's Mm -hmm. a distinct switch from oh yeah we're all family and we we're really happy to be together to everybody idolizes their dad right I don't know why I said that. Sad jazz. The 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 very interesting thing about these these flashbacks in general is that um and and this I promise this one's not a spoiler but what you see in the flashbacks with one exception which we'll talk about on Friday what you see in the flashbacks you can trust um like like what you see is what happened but it's what happened as it's interpreted by people so when somebody who's got a different perspective is looking at it you know, they'll they'll see it in a different way. It still happened, but, you know, there, there's a moment when they call Marta over and talk to her that she remembers it quite differently than they do. Um, yeah. But yeah, the music is, is a perfect example of that. It's, you know, it's always there, but who's remembering <laughs> what music? <laughs> yeah, very good, yes. It's jazz, but what kind is it? Yes. <laughs> jazz <happy>. jazz. <laughs> It's a uh, of ooh, I love it so much. It's good. Now there is one thing about this that I'm trying to remember, and I don't think so. Did Linda get her name on the screen? She did. Yeah, she did. Okay, um, I, I couldn't quite remember that. I was wondering if I had just missed it because yeah. Richard did, but I don't think everybody does. I, do I think, think only every- the kids do, right? Well, everybody who's interviewed does get it. I mean, I don't, because I spent most of the time on this five minutes, I'm not sure about, like, Marta's name during the interview or people who we've already met as characters during the interview. But Mm -hmm. I do think everybody in this one who's being interviewed, they do get a little, because their name pops up in the target. It's not just next to their head. It's, like, in the center of the knife target of, like, this is this person's name. They're a suspect. Keep your eye on the target. Because I know Joni gets one and I know Walt gets one. So I was trying to think, is it just the kids? Joni's technically not one of the kids, but, you know, same thing counts. Well, well, it doesn't start in this minute, but, um, you know, as as our minutes go on, more people are being interviewed, the Mm -hmm. more that they're revealed. So we have more to go on on, like, how is this person's interview different from this other's person's? Um, But one of those is, is that, like, I did not see Meg's name come up, even though she, like, appears for a split second to say one line. Mm-hmm. Um, but she doesn't get a name. So she was the only person who I noticed didn't get one, unless she got one and I did not see it. I you see, and that's, that's what I was trying to think. I guess, so I guess, I guess what we've, what we've led that out here is, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think anybody who's a suspect is getting a name. Yeah. Um, I guess that's least... it. I guess, I guess Meg is not really thought of as a suspect. I think uh, Jacob is not thought of as a suspect. I think the yeah. um, uh, the 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 four uh, you know ch- well the three children and also Richard are sort yeah. of our prime suspects here. The dependents, as you would say. There you go. <laughs> We're all our sus- suspects. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, yeah, so uh, our question for today, uh, which I find interesting, is um, uh, about uh, uh, ideas for uh, sequel ideas uh, and titles. First of all, title, obviously, Spoons Up. Um, <laughs> Mine was Shotguns Ready. <laughs> ooh, I like that. The um, the thing is, and the, the way this question works, I don't know, maybe you have like a, a, a better, I should say, a more involved or more interesting answer than I do, because I think my answer is bad, is um, I, don't, I don't care. Like, I want Brian Johnson to do whatever the hell he wants. <laughs> and, Why don't we just give him money? <laughs> right? I was like, and so like, don't get me wrong. I don't mean like like you know. Oh, I'm happy if we never get another Benoit Blanc. No, I want another Benoit Blanc movie. I really do. Um, <laughs> and but as far as like specific ideas, I'm like, I can't possibly imagine. Like, I don't want him to be like in. Another, I don't want any characters except Marta to come back. I know that. Oh yeah. Um, I want Marta to be his Watson. I wanted her to be like like she's started like writing her own mystery novels and she's on a book tour now or something. Um, <laughs> a bit of a J.B. Fletcher kind I, of vibe, you say. <laughs> it was, it was, that was very much what I was thinking of there. I may not have watched much Murder, She Wrote, but I know the tropes. Well, because also I know that if that many murders had happened in her tiny little New England town, there would have been questions. So I know she went on a lot of book tours. So in defense of J.B. Fletcher, just mm-hmm. to say, because I have to bring this up when we bring up Murder, She Wrote, and people say that. She does not solve all the mysteries in her little New England town. She is an author. She goes places. New York, several times. Hold on, <laughs> and hold on. one time I... oh, to yeah. uh, Magnum P.I. They did a crossover episode with Magnum P.I. in season three. And yet, so... never with Columbo. <laughs> I, sometimes we can't always get what we want. <laughs> okay, so this, um, okay, so I, I wrote this a while back. As as a joke, I do know that she does not, uh, that all of her murders do not take place there. But I thought <laughs> it was funny, so I did the math. Um, says, over 264 episodes, 42 novels, and four movies starting in 1984. J.B. Fletcher solves an average of 0.19 murder cases per week or 10.3 murder cases per year. Uh, during her period of greatest activity, 0.42 murder cases per week, 22 per year. Impressive for a non-professional, but for a town the size of Cabot Cove, which has about 3,500 people, people living in it, it's shocking. There are 3,500 people. <laughs> Compared to Santa Barbara, California, which has a population of 90,000, and yet Sean Spencer, a private investigator who actively seeks out murder cases, as opposed to Fletcher, who just stumbles upon them, only serves 13.88 per year, or 0.26 per week. From this, we can extrapolate that if Fletcher lived in Santa Barbara, she'd be solving 4.75 cases per week, or 257.5 per year. Or, in the period from 84 to 96, 10.5 per week, or 550 per year. Either that or the murder rate in Cabot Cove is insane. Well, see, this has been the problem the whole time. What we need to do to solve these murders is we just need to redistribute <laughs> Jessica Fletcher. Or clone her. <laughs> well, that's a part, that's a type of redistribution. But we are meant to be talking about Knives Out sequels, not Murder, She Wrote sequels. Um, so, I certainly do have an idea. As far as, like, the important things you need to know for a sequel, like the plot. Mm-hmm. And the murder. I don't have any of that, but I do spend the bulk of my uh, personal time in fandom and the fanfic world. So I can tell you I have no lack of ideas of what could happen. For one thing, (laughs) I would love to see 
a some kind of master thief nemesis introduced. And I would love nothing more than this nemesis be played by Rachel Weiss. Oh, that would be too good, absolutely. <laughs> I would have now, said that even before I knew they were married, which I found out about an hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just so happy that you know now. You're welcome. <laughs> Um, but or, or you know, a nemesis I feel is like mm-hmm. the right step to make. I would actually like to see. Um, I hope they find a way to make like some characters that uh, clearly can't come back, come back. I mean, like I said, I feel like Marta and Benoit are musts. Yeah, um, like they, they got to get her somehow. I don't want it yeah. to be like about her again. I want her to just like have her, you know, her her contributions. But you got to have her. Yeah, she she's just such a great. Also, just like. Anadama, like, very talented, and she really, I mean, what a role for her. I want to mm-hmm. see her doing stuff. I just like her, that's all. I don't have any fancy way of putting that. I think she's neat. Well, I think, honestly, like, part of what we can just say is, like, for a sequel, like, what actor, because I think that what we can do when we're casting this, and half of what I think um, Brian Johnson does when he's casting this is just, like, who do you want to see in a movie like this? I'm going to throw one out right now. Ron Perlman. Oh. Oh, Ron Perlman would be excellent. Wouldn't I, don't, I don't care what he's doing. I just think he would do well in a movie like this. It doesn't you know, matter. He could play like a big scary guy like he normally does. Or like, you know, every so often he gets a chance to break out of that. Like when he was a crazy monster part salesman in Pacific Rim. <laughs> yeah. I would like to see... Uh... I'd like to see Kate Blanchett in this universe. I'd like to see with her suits. Absolutely. Um, all, right, all right, let's 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 come up with two more each. Let's do three each. Um, uh, let's see. Randall Park. Uh, I think I'm he's not very charming. Remind me. He's. Uh, have you seen the uh, Have you seen the Ant Man movies? Uh, I have. Yes. He was. He's uh, Jimmy, the uh, the FBI agent that uh, monitors Scott. Jimmy Woo. Access. Jimmy Woo. Yeah. J- Agent Jimmy Wu, who Agent is very Jim. important and definitely not heterosexual. A hundred percent not. I was reading uh, that people were shipping him and Darcy now that they're both on WandaVision. I was like, what Jimmy Wu were you guys watching? <laughs> that dude only has eyes for Scott. <laughs> and who can blame him? Mm-hmm. Paul Rudd. That's somebody I would like to see. But I would, I, I would actually take it one further. What I would mm-hmm. like to see is Paul Rudd and Alicia Silverstone playing but just like a slight so we don't get into any rights issues just Mm -hmm. a slight sort of like caricature of their characters from clueless like they were step siblings who grew up together in california and then fell in love and they got married and now they're like old and rich and there's a mystery (laughs) nice i like it uh and for my third one i'm gonna play the way that alicia silverstone and paul rudd are quote unquote old Alicia Silverstone's playing a mom on the Babysitter's Club now, and I was like, I guess technically she's old enough. That's so shocking. Like, when I heard that Chad Michael Murray was playing a dad on Riverdale, and I was like, mm-hmm. well, that, I don't like that feeling of being having lived through multiple decades. This is upsetting. One of my favorite things about Riverdale is that almost all of the parents are played by, like, former teen actors. <laughs> Because it's, it's Archie's parents are Luke Perry and Molly Ringwald, and Skeet Ulrich is Jughead's dad, and uh... Gina Gershon is Jughead's mom. Which I was don't get me wrong, she mm-hmm. nails it. She does a great job. Always happy to see Gina Gershon's face. Mm-hmm. But they missed out on the chance to make Farouja Bulk 
like yeah yeah his mom which was like i feel like i am owed a craft reference in riverdale i'm amazed they haven't already uh right especially especially when they were like trying to sort of advertise sabrina before mm -hmm. it became like a separate um separate cash cow and they couldn't refer to it anymore they were really trying to push the witch thing i thought for sure uh, missed opportunity uh i will say for for my third one i uh i didn't get it but i i will i will be basic and pick like one of the obvious choices but jeff, jeff goldblum would have fun in this world <laughs> you know he i feel like jeff goldblum is at the point in his career where he shows up on set he maybe mm -hmm. doesn't know what movie he showed up to but he has showed up to have a good time and some acting is going to happen at some point but that's secondary he didn't even have to change clothes for thor he just showed up wearing that <laughs> yeah. he was just like hi i was i was being a sex god on the on another set earlier like just at my house i uh, um, i brought rachel house with me do you want her in this <laughs> I got her some uh, plastic armor, and uh, we were just having a, we were playing laser tag. I love it every time. Um, every time you watch this show, and then you see an like an actor's spouse mm -hmm. show up in the background. I always imagine that what happened was there was a rush on set where everyone was like, "Oh no, we didn't cast anyone for this part," <laughs> and the actor will stand up and be like, "What about my wife? She's in the car." I left my wife in the car. She could play the role. Um, I can tell you one case where this literally did actually happen. Oh my god, um, is it Inkheart? Sorry, Paul Bettany and Jennifer Connelly. <laughs> oh, shoot. I 100% forgot that movie even existed. Hold on, I'm just going to mark it as watched in Letterboxd real kick. There we go. Um, no, it's in um, uh, the, uh, the James Bond movie, A View to a Kill. Um, it is uh, uh, Roger Moore at an embarrassingly advanced age. Uh, I was going to say, James that Bond. must be a Roger Moore one, because I haven't seen it. <laughs> it's, it's Roger Moore and Tanya Roberts, who I think was literally, like, a third his age when they were filming it. Um, and, like, oh, and the thing is, like, you can tell Roger Moore doesn't even like doing it anymore. Like, like he's, he seems embarrassed. And he said in interviews, like, when I realized how old she was, I was like, I can't play James Bond anymore. And... <laughs> It's particularly bad whenever he turns, whenever you can see him from the back and you realize what they had to do to his hair to make it look like he still has it. Um, <laughs> but the villains in that one are uh, Christopher Walken and Grace Jones. And, wow. Yeah. And there's one scene uh, where uh, just like in the background as one of Christopher Walken's bodyguards, um, you get Dolph Lundgren. Uh, now, because share in case somebody doesn't Do know, Dolph Lundgren was dating Grace Jones at the time, and he just came to the set to say hi. And he was this is his first movie role. This is the year before Rocky Four, and he like just showed up to set to be like you know like to to say hi. And they were like, "Hey, you look like the kind of guy that would be like a Nazi superhuman. You want to uh, stand in the background of the scene and look intimidating?" Like, okay. What a strange compliment to receive, if it's a compliment. The Who can um, say? <laughs> I mean, in context, you know. <laughs> he certainly he showed up and he was needed. I'm glad that. See, so what I'm saying is, actors bring your spouses to set. Exactly. Um, 
You can never tell what good stuff is going to happen. By the way, just to go back to what started this, uh, just in case anyone was curious, uh, Jeff Goldblum and Rachel House are not married. We just went off on a tangent. It'd <laughs> <laughs> be yeah, great, though, right? You know what? I will add on, though. Mm-hmm. Gina Davis. I would love to see Gina Davis in a movie with Jeff Goldblum again. I, I haven't. I, I've only seen the two. <laughs> I absolutely would. Um, all right. So uh, that's that. Um, uh, please, please do uh, uh, plug yourself again. We do plugs yeah. every day here. That's how we operate. Yeah, we're always plugging. We're just plugging away, as they say. Plugging and, and vibing. Um, I'm Michael. You can find me on Twitter at, at Madam underscore Michael. And you can also hear me on my podcast every Tuesdays, the K-Bay podcast. That's K-B-A-E podcast. On Spotify and iTunes, we watch Korean dramas and then we talk about them. Uh, so please do check us out on Twitter at Knives Out Minute. Uh, and of course, please do rate, review, and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. That's right, I said podcatcher this time. Sometimes I do. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's that. So I will, uh, I'll see you tomorrow, Michael.